Okay. Um, in the uh, <clears throat> general way of looking at it, it's um, aversion is divided into two kinds. One is that outflowing, strong, uh, kind of dominant expression, and the other is the shrinking in, frozen, held in kinds of aversion. Um, anger is the prominent example of that kind of aversion that is so outflowing, that's so expressive. The other kinds are, especially the held-in kinds, are things more like fear, um, guilt, grief, impatience, disappointment, dejection. So they are more subtle because their energy is more contracted rather than explosive. I don't know if any of them are in your top ten. Let's see if I can get this. <laughs> um, I think practically speaking, it's not useful to get into an infinite regression, you know, of uh, the concept of noting the noting or, or noting the mindfulness. Um, the particular factor of wrong view, which is the quality or the, the mental factor that does the identifying, that takes um, the experience to be self, is based upon the quality of ignorance. It's a kind of ignorance of not knowing. And as far as I can tell, at this hour of the morning, <laughs> the the uh, very state of mindfulness, which means that there's no grasping aversion or delusion in the mind, would not um, likely produce wrong view towards itself, that one would not have that sense of identification. There are times when we actually leave the mindfulness and in some way are reflecting on it, you know, that was really mindful, or I'm really uh, doing well, or something like that. But that is different than the actual moment of, of being aware. Well, so. It's the quality of the reactivity, yeah. the acting, yeah. the active mind that, that distinguishes the identification. Right, yeah. right. Um, the subtle thing is that delusion is a type of reaction, but it's not as clear and sharp as you know, trying to push something out or trying to hold on to it. And so it's, it's some exploration to 
understand that faculty of delusion, you know, and how it's manifesting in our mind. Yeah, I'm, I'm just trying to get a, a handle yeah. on what this experience of identification is. Yeah. Yeah. As I experience, you know, being lost in a Mm-hmm. I mean, I think uh, the word recognition is key in there. there you know, um, we can use the word identification in English to mean recognition, and that's not what we're actually talking about as a faculty of delusion. We're talking about that sense of identifying with, taking to be self, you know, and so that is, that's an important distinction, I think, to know. Uh, personally, for oneself, as you're experiencing these different um, changing, flowing events. You know, what does the moment feel like when you are recognizing what's going on? <clears throat> what does it actually feel like when you are identifying with it as your own? You know, as something you should be able to control, as something you should be able to hold on to. You know, when, when does it refer back to a seemingly solid self? And when does it seem like empty phenomena rolling on? That you can recognize in each of its elements. So, yeah. When conversion arises, when do you change it to what? Well, uh, again, that's a very personal... The question was about when aversion arises, when do you stay with it and when do you try to change it to a more wholesome mind state? Um, if you feel balanced, you know, and you feel that you are recognizing aversion, taking an interest in its nature, as opposed to being enmeshed and caught in the story that seems to be the cause of the aversion, if you can really be with the feeling be learning about the feeling and either be seeing its impermanence, seeing its unsatisfactoriness, or seeing that it is empty in essence, that there's nothing there, that it's conditions coming together, producing this effect. It's like a storm in the weather, you know, like today, um, that there's no solidity, although we may project that onto it. If you're experiencing it in that way, then you're really resting in the awareness of it. And so there's no need to, to somehow try to get rid of it. You know, if, if you're feeling less balanced than that on any given day, <laughs> any given time, um, you might see, just as an experiment, if you can 
let go of it and be generating metta or if it's you know aversion towards a particular person um, shift your focus about that person seeing the goodness in them or if it's about yourself seeing the goodness in yourself or seeing the suffering you know that actions that are unwholesome or really born out of suffering you know so there are ways that you can move your your attention and it's very powerful to discover how fluid our minds can sometimes be you know that in fact it's not repression and it's not out of fear or dislike of the aversion of the state of aversion but it's recognizing that it also is conditioned and that if we play with some of those conditions sometimes a whole other experience will arise it's like what i said um the other night i have really seen genuinely that if i am thinking about somebody that i don't like that i have a lot of judgment or resentment for and i do think of one good thing about them i actually see most times i see that resentment shift so that i feel warmth and i feel some caring and i still see all of that behavior which i think is not right but i see it the way i would view it in one of my friends a little more you know so that it's not so um utterly separate from my field of caring it's still not right in my mind but it's not it's not so distant you know and so completely other making um but i don't like to do that i don't like to shift i see that you know my mind to looking at the good in this person you know there's a strong habituation to feeling better than that person and so while it works to focus on the good it takes some some commitment to say oh well i'll you know i'll just look at this aspect of them and i'll remember this when i think of them and i'll speak about this rather than speak about the other parts and it does work you know if we can if we can find that one good thing and if we are willing to do that to reorient our minds yeah Mm-hmm. Well, I have, and you talked about those as things that can energize us. So I get that feeling, like I'm so lucky sitting here and I feel energized. But then it feels like that somehow is a feeling that is, makes me better than And I'm, I'm quite confused. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess in ultimate level, uh, the teaching is about a precious human birth that it's it's um very rare and precious for so many conditions to come together for people to actually be able to practice. Uh 
And within the Buddhist cosmology, to begin with, you need a, a human birth and um, for it to be a precious human birth. And the reason for that is that uh, there needs to be just the right mixture of pleasure and pain in one's life. If there's too much pain, if there's unremitting suffering, then very often there's not that energy, there's not the spark to, to be investigating, to be exploring. It's just a question of survival. If there's too much pleasure, then sometimes we just play along, you know, and, and we're having a fine time and uh, are very complacent and also don't have that spark. We're not moved to really investigate. And so, symbolically, that's what a human birth means. And then the preciousness of it has to do with all of the conditions coming together. You have to hear of the teachings. There has to be the opportunity to practice it. Um, you have to be earnest about practicing it and not just thinking about it you know, or reading about it. And, and so there's a tremendous number of conditions that come together. It's quite impersonal. You know, it's not that um, we should sit here being smug about having the conditions having come together. It's, it's extraordinary that they have done so. And the fact that they don't for all beings is, is really tragic. You know, the more um, that understanding can be extended, the more our practice is fruitful. You know, that it is not that we are trying to separate ourselves from the rest of humanity and in some way feel self-righteous about what we've done to get here, although that is certainly possible, you know. It's really understanding how intricate and tremendous these conditions have been, and they may not last even for us. You know, that, that is the truth of things, that we have this opportunity here, for example, to come together, and we just assume there'll be another one next year, perhaps, but we don't really know what's going to happen. You know, and so it is very fragile, even as it comes together for us. You know, it's not going to last in some way or another. It's going to change. And so it's, it's also seeing that if we practice with that understanding that it's not just for us, then whatever we do will include that wish that more and more and more beings will be able to live in truth in some way that they'll have the opportunity, if not necessarily in this way, in some way, to be not so burdened by suffering that they can't transcend their ordinary concerns in some way, and not so deluded by pleasure that they just go on and on and on until it's time to die. You know? And then there's, there's fear and there's confusion. Okay, it's time to walk. Thank you. I got a quick one. Uh, could you reiterate again the instructions for noting when things get real busy and you're really noticing everything? There's. <clears throat> There are a couple of 
different experiences of um, a kind of a flood of impressions or sensations or knowings. And the first is when one is very restless. Uh, Sometimes there can be a flood of mental and physical um, stuff that is just uh, quite overwhelming feeling. In which case, it's um, helpful to recognize the whole picture of everything that's happening as restlessness. And just to let everything that you feel and know be known by the name restless. And then as you settle into that whole experience of restlessness and agitatedness and uh, chaotic flood of material, then it'll be some things will gradually become clearer or become more defined or distinct, in which case then you can note them individually, whether it's a particular uh, cycle of thought or particular vibration in the body or whatever it is. And then in time you can get a handle on the whole picture of restlessness. Another type of uh, flood of material or sometimes maybe apparently chaotic um, jumble of stuff is when the mindfulness gets quite precise and continuous and you can be with breath and sensations and thoughts as they happen, it sometimes happens that the mind seems to take off and it just knows a lot quickly but very clearly and distinctly. It's just like, wow, there's a lot happening. It's just, in which case, again, settle back. Stop using any labels or intentional direction for your attention and just notice what goes by. And occasionally you can throw in a note or a label uh, every uh, few seconds or every 10 seconds. And for as long as the momentum of clarity is sustained, you can just let the mind go where it will, noticing each place that it goes. When the momentum falters or you begin spacing out or drifting off in a particular scenario, then you want to redirect. uh, You want to identify more precisely where you're getting caught or drifting, and then possibly uh, redirect your attention to the primary noting sequence, whatever that is. Sort of what, and I'm just wondering if, if, if I should 
the labeling every sensation neutral, pleasant, or painful, or sometimes that's not actually getting in the way of discrimination? It's not necessary to identify every experience as pleasant, painful, and neutral. Sometimes the pleasant quality of experience is most predominant, in which case then you would note it, or sometimes the painful quality is most predominant, in which case you note it. Rarely is the neutral quality most predominant. It sometimes is helpful when there's something happening and you don't know just what, to begin to get a handle on it, to just say, well, is it pleasant or is it painful? But it's not necessary to go looking for that quality in every experience. The question is about, in developing metta, we go from self to benefactor, friend, neutral, and then a difficult person, and he's wondering where our parents are. You know, and he rightly acknowledged that they could be most anywhere in that grouping. Um, Not neutral. Sometimes parents have their own category, (laughs) you know, parents. And uh, for as much as you can um, recall the beneficial and the benefactory uh, qualities of them, uh, then you can send them metta. When you're feeling um, very disturbed by your relationship with them, uh, you might also want to send them metta. I can't, what, I can't remember what the question was. two parts were why are they not included in the traditional system? And the second part was, is there a category under which? Why they're not included in that traditional sequence? As we go on, you'll discover that they are included. But that's just the initial sequence. Soon we'll get to groups of people, all beings, all males, all females, etc. And uh, in, the, in the chant that we do in the evening, there is the ref- uh, sending a metta to parents and teachers and supporters. So there is, there is a formal inclusion of parents. But initially, I think it's because our uh, relationship with our parents is so full or uh, contains so much affection and difficulty, that it's difficult to maintain an image of or a feeling for parents that is stable enough to let the mind actually become 
tranquil and alert. You know, the, the images can change pretty quickly when you think about your parents. Ah, oh, yeah. Mm. <laughs> you know, it gets pretty... Um, and so the mind may not be able to rest so tranquilly. More difficult to uh, maintain that. Yeah, when, when the momentum of the mind is very strong, uh, then yeah, you can call your parents to mind, pervade them metta, and for as long as uh, the mind stays with metta towards parents, fine. When you find that there are eruptions of difficult uh, experience or memories with parents and you begin sending them dosa, or, or, or you know, a version of one sort or another, or criticism, uh, then you might want to let go of your parents come back to yourself or a benefactor, develop the momentum again until you can then turn to your parents and, and, and uh, maintain a, uh, an image that you can send, pervade metta to. Yes? Did someone have a question there? Yeah, yeah. Your experience, uh, two things. One, whatever your experience is, is the truth for you. And if you feel restlessness with other uh, mental states, then that's what you need to acknowledge and, and validate that for yourself. In the text, they say, restlessness arises with every other hindrance, with every other obstruction of the mind. So that with aversion, there is some restlessness. With uh, attachment or clinging, there is some restlessness. With uh, delusion, there's restlessness. With envy, there's restlessness. With, with pride, there's restlessness. They say there is a, a consciousness that is restlessness and uh, delusion only, without aversion or uh, attachment of some sort. And it's the um, a kind of a remorse or an anxiety about past actions that might have been unskillful that we did, or even past opportunities when we had the opportunity to do something skillful and we didn't. We can have a sense of uh, restlessness about that without aversion or without attachment. And so that might be an area you could distinguish restlessness without a particular strong aversion or clinging. It's about nine o'clock. Stephen Smith um, won't be in today, so those of you who had interviews with him today will have them tomorrow. So have a good day.
stop noting during our meditation session? Hmm. Hmm. If you understand noting to be the labeling of putting a word on the experience, yes. There are times when the experience, whatever it is, is very clear and uh, concise and precise. We recognize it and we don't need to uh, put a word on it or label it to hold our attention on it. So in that case, if there's that degree of clarity and momentum and, and knowing of the experience, no need to label. However, to note actually means not just to label, but to recognize. And there is in, you know, the meditation we could say is to recognize or to know one moment after another. And so, in fact, if you understand to note, meaning to recognize or to know, then no, it's never uh, proper to not note. So, yes and no. <laughs> <laughs> that sort of implies that uh, all the knowing we do is through language, you know, conceptual. <coughs> No, no, no. We. No, no, no. He, he's suggesting that I was implying that all knowing is through language. No, definitely not. I think we all have lots of experience of knowing experience without words. It would be okay not to know in that case. <laughs> the knowing. In that case, is is what I would call noting, mm, but not not labeling, not words, not. What attitudes are you experiencing or, or thinking about? Or what, what, what attitudes are you talking about, for example? Well, the big ones I can see. Like? Uh 
How do you know it's an attitude? Because it's coloring the way I'm seeing something. What color is it? <laughs> it's different than when I would be just understand. You're getting close. Keep looking. You'll soon discover. Yeah, good, bad, that's right. Yeah, that's, that's just what this man was acknowledging. Knowing without words. And if you look and, and really um, stay with that experience, it will become clear and distinct what the nature of that attitude is. And then you'll no longer be under its spell. When you have a name for your demons, you have begun to uh, control them. Delusion is seductive. I just want to be able to see it. To know that it's there and then I can run the scene. Yeah, that's that's precisely why we pay attention to you know, to really get clear what is this spell I'm under, or what is this cloud I'm under, or what is this lens I'm looking through, or what is this attitude I'm copying. And when we see it, we're no longer blindly, uh, or unconsciously, or obsessively victimized or manipulated by it. It may still be there even though we see it, but it begins to lose its power as we notice it. We say, okay, I see you, frustration. I may be doing my practice and paying attention to rising and falling of whatever experience is happening with a slight attitude of frustration. Okay, and once we see that frustration and we just recognize it and begin to recognize it more quickly, it ceases to have so much controlling power over our experience. And as we continue to note it in and notice it in its many arisings and manifestations, it soon uh, ceases to be an attitude. Yeah. And that's the same, it's, it's not only frustration, it can be very subtle uh, attitudes of contentment. Just like, which colors all of our experience can become an attitude that we get attached to because it's slightly pleasant. And when it's not there, we are unhappy because we haven't noted it when it has been there. There, there are a number of places you can become mindfully aware and 
let go or non-attach. And it's in that juncture between pleasant, unpleasant, and attachment, aversion. The liking and disliking is maybe the, the, the glue between the two. Because it's, it's hard to like unpleasantness. But when it's in the service of awakening, well, I think we've all had this uh, experience of painful pleasantness or pleasant painfulness. You know, like uh, when you get uh, rolfed or deep massage or something, it's really painful and pleasant at the same time. A lot of, or we come across these experiences in meditation where we open to some mental or physical experience and it can be excruciating and pleasant at the same time in some seemingly paradoxical way. No, no. There's no destiny. There's no function like that working. I, I maybe was hasty in my use of the words liking and disliking because I think that there is a quality of pleasantness and unpleasantness that we can directly experience. There is the experience of attachment and aversion, which we can directly experience. And the liking and disliking is something, there are some terms in Buddhism that they're roughly translated liking and disliking, but they're not really equivalent to what we in English know as liking and disliking. So it's not only a willful liking or disliking. If it's a willful, then of course we have a choice. If it's not willful, um, then you don't have a choice of liking and disliking. Then it's not attachment, it's not willful. Mm. Can I ask a follow-up question? Um, does every thought carry a, uh, an emotional state with it? What's your experience? Look, look really closely, and then you'll discover for yourself which thoughts do, which thoughts don't, or where you're confused if it does or doesn't. That's really the way to find out. I might be wrong. <laughs> There's a couple of announcements for this morning. The first is that Stephen is not feeling well, and so he called to cancel his appointment or his uh, interviews today. If any of you who were postponed yesterday and canceled today have rehearsed your report <laughs> so thoroughly that you have to give it, I'll be in my room this morning and you come, can come and do your performance. But it's okay. <laughs> so. And secondly, I have to read a piece of a poem by May Sarton in the service of um, wisdom. 
called Love from Autumn Sonnets. <clears throat> if I can let you go as trees let go their leaves, so casually, one by one, if I can come to know what they do know, that fall is the release, the consummation, then fear of time and the uncertain fruit would not distemper the great lucid skies this strangest autumn, mellow and acute. As a way of introducing you to the, the annual leaf-raking meditation <laughs> instruction. <laughs> so, you may have noticed that, like us, the trees are now naked and raw and bare. And um, it's our responsibility to uh, collect their droppings so that we can have another crop next year. And so today there will be raking meditation during each walking period. And um, it's a little bit complicated, but the, one of the uh, maintenance or groundskeepers will be there to instruct you in the back porch where the rakes and barrels and bags and things are all kept. And there are maple trees that have yellowish leaves. Those are good for the garden. There are oak leaves, oak trees which have brown leaves, not good for the garden. So when you collect the maples, mostly yellows, they can go on the compost. When you collect the oaks, or mostly browns, they go down in the trash pile. There's a sign on the bulletin board that will uh, show you where all this is located. What else was I supposed to say? So, we figure there's about 25 trees at about 25 million leaves apiece. And there's a hundred of us. If we each pick up, you know, rake for a half an hour and pick up three bagfuls, it'll be done. And that way, next year, we can have a nice lawn again. If we don't rake it up, the leaves pack down the lawn, and we have no grass next year. Have I encouraged you to do raking <laughs> meditation yet? <laughs> so please consider it another opportunity to get warm on a cool day. Oh, it'll probably come up in a Dharma talk somewhere. It's a lovely poem by me, Satin. <clears throat> Any urgent questions? Yeah. Where do the red leaves go? Where do what? <laughs> red leaves? Uh, red leaves? Uh, this year there were not so many red leaves. Some years there's lots of red leaves, but this year, kind of mellow. Impressionistic, or whatever. Pastel. If they're maple, they go in one pile. But don't get too... <laughs> Too <laughs> neurotic, <laughs> just roughly. Okay, have a good day. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit Dharma Seed dot org slash donate